Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, The Centrist Podcast. I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by James Johnson, uh, the former Senior Opinion Research and Strategy Advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister, Senior Advisor to Keck CNC, and the co-founder of JL Partners. Welcome to the podcast, James. Hello. Um, so the first question that I'd like to ask is, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, there, you were um, the uh, senior opinion uh, research and strategy advisor at Theresa May when she was prime minister. Um, in regards to polling for number 10, in what way did that differ in the uh, kind of approach that political parties do polling and uh, other uh, groups do polling? Or was it quite similar in terms of the way that other groups do polling? Yeah, so the big difference between private polling and public polling um, is that you have a bit more uh, resource to be able to ask more questions and mm -hmm. uh, do sort of slightly more sophisticated things uh, than you are with public polling. So uh, often when newspapers want a poll or TV channels want a poll, uh, they don't have big budgets. So the, the polls you tend to see on the TV and in newspapers, including now I'm out of the political world, my own mm. polls, uh, they're not on big budgets. So you usually have to sort of squeeze the questions quite, quite, to quite a uh, tight extent. Whereas when private polling, you have got a bit more uh, um, to be able to use, particularly on the party side, obviously, um, uh, where the money is raised by sort of donors and so on in terms of CCHQ or perhaps more on the sort of union's membership fee on the Labour side. So it allows you to delve a little bit deeper in. Now, in terms of the sort of questions that you ask, there's not much point in just replicating what you see in the public polls. We did actually used to have our own voting intention tracker, but it wouldn't tell you much radically different to the public polls. If it was, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> Um, but what it was most use was really understanding the kinds of voters uh, that political parties are most interested in. So being able to delve a bit deeper, for example, on, for us, those voters that came to the Conservatives for the first time in 2017 um, and monitoring those and how they behaved, as well as those voters who thought about coming over to the Conservatives in 2017 but weren't able to make the final leap. It also allows you to do message testing, policy testing, and so on. But that's really what it's about, getting that deeper view than you can from the public voting intention polls. To what extent do you think that um, polling can actually influence public opinion, or do you think that it is merely a means of reflecting what the public already think? It's an interesting question. I think certainly when it comes to elections and who people think is going to win, it does make a difference. One of the real challenges for the Conservative Party in the 2017 election was that nobody really amongst the public thought Jeremy Corbyn could win. Mm. And a lot of that was because of months and months of double-digit opinion leads for the Conservatives. And that therefore did create a degree of complacency among some voters uh, because they thought that their vote may well punish the Conservatives, but there wasn't much press prospect of Jeremy Corbyn coming into power. We actually saw a similar thing just earlier this month in Hartlepool, where some voters uh, were saying to us in sort of uh, focus groups and interviews we were doing up there um, that they didn't think Labour uh, would ever 
you know, not be in power there. And mm. that could have demotivated some Tory voters, obviously not enough in the end. The Conservatives clearly can convincingly won the seat. But you can see that making an impact. So I think, yeah, in some scenarios, you certainly can see polls impacting public opinion. The other one, of course, is people thinking that politicians follow the polls uh, rather than their own instincts. And that's been one of the major criticisms of Keir Starmer in our focus groups recently, this feeling that perhaps he's following what the public want or what he thinks the public want rather than his own instincts. And people don't much like that. Mm. Um, now, on the subject matter of um, 2017, one of the things that is often reiterated by uh, people in the Labour Party, particularly the left of the Labour Party, is that Labour's manifesto in that election um, was, you know, particularly uh, popular and there is polling data uh, to suggest that different uh, policies like nationalisation, etc., are, you know, very popular with the public. However, of course, Labour uh, didn't win uh, that general election, of course, um, lost the uh, 2019 general election in much worse state than in 2017. To what degree do you think people uh, conflate the popularity of individual polls with the popularity of a full election manifesto? Well, they, they, they certainly do. And uh, the real authority on this is actually Tony Blair, who, who, who sums this up uh, brilliantly in a clip that's available online. I think he was talking to Rachel Sylvester uh, uh, last year or, or in 2018. And he sort of gets right at the heart of this fallacy of doing this because people, the public, don't see these things in isolation. If you go out and poll somebody on something, then they're sat there on the, looking at the question on their computer. They may have never thought about that question or that policy ever before in their lives and never will again. Mm. Because the question is in front of them, they will answer whether they support or oppose it. Now, when you're in the real world and people are thinking about who they're going to vote for in an election, it's pretty rare that one policy is in mind because voters are thinking about the next five years, who they want to run the country. Voters would always have their own personal interests as well and things they're particularly interested in or not interested in. But very rarely do people ever think of policies in isolation. And the key point made by Blair, the key point on this issue, is that it means nothing at all if your policies are great, but you're not trusted to deliver them. And that was the key problem in the 2019 general election we did research in the campaign itself that showed this, that although people liked in isolation the ideas, even like the free broadband and so on, um, when they realised that it was Labour and Corbyn who were involved in delivering them, that sort of cautious, oh, that sounds like a good idea, actually tended to dissolve into laughter, derision, uh, and a sense that this would never be delivered under Labour. So, yes, fine, great if you've got individual policies that are popular, but it means nothing if your overall brand is weak. Now, you mentioned uh, Keir Starmer a few minutes ago, and obviously if you look at the polling, uh, his uh, opinion approval polling, that in the past few months has taken an incredible um, town downward turn. Is there any one issue that you think that is responsible for this downward turn, or do you think it's simply that people feel um, now it seems that the worst of the pandemic has been uh, gotten over with, that they don't still trust the Labour Party in the same way that perhaps they do the Conservatives? This is somewhere where focus groups come in really handy because we've been doing focus groups along around the same time as that that polling trend has taken place. And when Keir Starmer first came into office, uh, firstly, he got an immediate boost because he wasn't Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. 
Um, and then as the summer went on, people noticed that he was quite good at PMQs. Uh, and uh, I'm not suggesting people watch PMQs, but they do, you know, through this sort of phase of osmosis, they do realise what's sort of being said and how a political leader is generally performing. Um, so they were quite positive. And then as you say, that really has taken a turn. Now, I think that's from a number of things, according to the focus group groups. One of them is that they've sort of been looking at Keir Starmer. They've been perhaps a little bit more engaged in politics than they usually would have been because of the pandemic. And they're not getting a sense of what his positive vision is. Um, they see him attacking the government. They see him criticising, particularly on some of those pandemic issues that people feel perhaps shouldn't be used in political terms uh, for political gain. Um, but they're not seeing his vision for the country, his set of policies. So that's one of the frustrations that we see. We also just generally see this sense that perhaps this guy, as I alluded to earlier, isn't really a values politician. He isn't somebody who's got strong beliefs. He isn't somebody who says what he means. He's perhaps pursuing what the public want. He's perhaps pursuing what he thinks a politician should do, rather than what really uh, gets at the number of the issue and what he stands for. Whatever the, whatever the downsides of Boris Johnson, they feel that Boris Johnson is authentic and they feel like he gets things done. Mm. And those things have become more important in terms of what voters are looking for than competence and an eye for detail. So it seems to be that. And, and the, the other thing on that, Will, is that it's, it's not necessarily a new thing. I did focus mm. groups in January 2020, just before the Labour leadership election got underway. And we tested all of the main candidates at that time, Lisa Nandy, Emily Thornbury, Keir Starmer, uh, I think Jess Phillips was in the race as well. Uh, and um, Keir Starmer then, voters said he's another politician. He's just another politician in a suit. Someone even said he reminded them of David Cameron. Um, so even these very early impressions, there was this sense of, is he really somebody who stands for what he believes in? Now, Keir Starmer really needs to change that view if he's going to try and be able to claw his approval ratings back up to positive again. I'd just like to um, quickly turn to Ed David, because when he was elected uh, leader of the Liberal Democrats, one of the things that he uh, particularly wanted to focus on um, was care workers and social care. And you would think that, given what's happened with the pandemic, that perhaps that would have pushed the Liberal Democrats more to the forefront. But we seem to still see the Lib Dems at a kind of uh, about 7%, 10% um, that they had before um European elections uh, last year. What do you think is the issue uh, in 2019? Uh, uh, what do you think is the issue with uh, the Liberal Democrats cutting through? Do you think that there's something that uh, they haven't been able to focus on as a, as a central policy to push them through? Or do you think it's just that voters have just gone back to ignoring them? Yeah, I was going to say, I think one of the real difficulties with Liberal Democrats is you get a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy effect where if you lose support and you become a smaller party in parliament, you get less coverage and therefore you get less support amongst mm. the public because people don't know what you're saying. So there is a difficulty there. Very rarely are the Lib Dems able to punctuate, puncture through the news and uh, get, get through to what the public are saying. I mean, certainly, you know, never mind the public, I think I would struggle to name something that the Dems had, had, had you know, gone on in the last month or so, mm. and, and I'm obviously a bit more I'm quite plugged into politics. <laughs> um, but uh, it's not just that, though. I mean, it is also about leadership, and it is also about this point, again, about policies and leadership. You can focus on any policy you want, the most popular thing in, on earth, 
uh, or, or indeed things that are really pressing to people's everyday lives like social care. But if they are not sort of seeing someone grabbing their attention or really bringing that to the forefront in a persuasive way, then it has less effect. And I think that's a problem for Keir Starmer, it's a problem for Ed Davey, in that perhaps these leaders, especially when they're up against somebody like Boris Johnson, need to look at more creative ways to get attention. Now, I'm slightly biased here because I used, used to work for him, but Rory Stewart was a good example of somebody like that, who actually, his views were quite centrist, quite mainstream, quite moderate, but he had quite sort of off-centre uh, ways of grabbing attention um, and really you know, coming across as somebody who actually cared about the issues he was talking about. Um, now, I'd like to um, turn to something which has been a, a focus of uh, the think tank, which is the 11 plus uh, and grammar schools. Do you think there's a way that political groups can better sell policies to the public, such as ending selection to um, grammar schools and secondary modern system? Because this seems an issue that uh, traditionally divides the public between left and right. So do you think there is a way to reach across that divide? In, in terms of uh, sort of phasing out selection? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the difficulty with, with, with that one is that lots of voters feel like this is done and is the settled means of life. Mm. So it's very hard to sell to a voter something that is going to disrupt their child's education uh, or is going to lead uh, to a change, immediate change in their lives. Mm. So uh, it's about the sort of, um, I suppose, the key thing when it comes to messaging is trying to make clear that the status quo is changing, but A, the impact is not going to be so disruptive on your own life, and B, that that, that change is worth it. That's a hard message to land with the public, hmm. um, because as I say, they don't really feel the need uh, for that to change at this stage. It's a little bit similar uh, with private schools as well. And political hmm. parties, including parties who have traditionally opposed selection, uh, tend not to want to go near that one, um, because the public react quite badly in that way. But I suppose to answer uh, very pragmatically your question directly, you would probably want to look at a way of uh, trying to sort of explain how this would be a slow phase out rather than something that was immediate and overnight. Do you think that part of the reason that people have a uh, perhaps a negative reaction to that is they feel that it's too, mov- too much of an intrusion uh, into their own uh, personal lives? And this is something that you'll see in... Um, other elements of uh, polling in, in terms of support with for other issues that people want the government to intervene, but not necessarily in things that perhaps may uh, alter their lives too radically. For, for example, they may want to uh, see the government intervene in getting investment back into um, certain areas, but they perhaps may not want to see the government, as they see it, uh, interfering with their child's education. Yeah, I mean, there are that now there is permission for that when there's a really good reason for it and people feel like that. So obviously mm. the great example is the level of legislation in the last year that has directly impacted, often ruined people's lives or mm. massively restricted their lives. Um, uh, people are, as you've seen in all the polls, pretty supportive of that because they feel like there's a good enough reason for that to take place. Now, um, the problem, uh, the, the, the challenge for people who are uh, keen to phase out something like selection in schools is that people don't feel like there's that pressing need mm. to do that. They actually, I mean, grammar schools are pretty popular, right? Especially amongst yeah. the kinds of voters um, that are swing voters in, 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 English, in English elections at the moment. 
Um, so I think if you have a compelling reason, then people are perhaps more willing for that. Um, if you don't, like on the grammar school side, uh, in people's minds, it's a bit more difficult. Then there are those issues that sort of sit in between those two things. So like the challenge to uh, go net zero by uh, 2050 um, and to do to improve the environment. That's an interesting one because that clearly is going to require quite a lot of sacrifices by individuals. Um, but there is also a pretty good reason that people understand to try and make those changes, namely to improve the environment and to save the planet or whatever the message, the message might be. So on those ones, it's hard to see where it's going to swing and it probably depends on the amount of sacrifices they have to make. Um, with some other issues, such as um, the right to die, the public almost unanimously support introduction and have done so in multiple polls, but politicians have yet to support it in, in, in any great measure. Is there only so far that opinion polling and public opinion in general can push politicians on issues like that, do you think? Um, well, look, I mean, I think that the key thing with the political world we're in is that polling should not mean, should not equal policy. Mm. Um, and even as the person running polling in number 10, this is something that I was always quite keen to make sure was clear. My contribution was one part of the uh, set of evidence. It was one part of something to be considered, and it should never be the answer in its own right. And often, polling and what the public said was part of that equation. Uh, sometimes it wasn't at all, mm -hmm. um, for example, on things like military action, um, and other times... Uh, uh, as I say, it was part of the discussion, but very, very rarely would any decision be made on polling itself. In fact, I can't really think of anything um, unless it's directly tied to an election or the way a message is presented or something like that. So that's important because clearly a lot of policy things do matter. And I suppose leading directly onto your question, it also allows you to have a bit more freedom um, to be able to push certain things, even if they do appear to be unpopular. Mm. Um, so this is something that is really important. If an issue isn't really salient, even if it's unpopular, um, governments and parties can still lead the public on those things. A great example of that when, when I was there is actually on the military action point. Um, when uh, in uh, April 2018, Theresa May authorised uh, strikes on Syria. Mm -hmm. Now, in the public polls before that, people were pretty hostile about the idea. They tended to oppose it rather than support it. And focus groups at the time indicated there was a lot of worry about Iraq and you getting into another conflict like Iraq. Now, after the event took place, the public polls showed that opposition turning to support and the focus groups were saying, oh, that was quite good, actually. It showed she was quite strong. So the public can really be led on these things. And it really does get down to why, in terms of research, you have to look carefully at each individual thing, because some issues will really spark and really be opposed by the public and be really difficult to get past and to lead them on. Whereas others, others even though it looks like the public are opposed, it will actually be able to be, be relatively straightforward to persuade them of the virtues of that thing. In regards to uh, persuading them, the think tank supports using uh, high-speed maglev trains within the UK. Now, it's a new idea uh, in terms of gaining support in the UK. How do you think you increase public support for it being seen as a new idea uh, in the UK and being judged to be a new technology when 
it has been used in uh, other countries uh, for some time and is quite old and well tested in them, but not so in the UK. Well, I think using the international comparisons there is always is always helpful. Mm. Um, certainly, the way that voters tend to talk about some of the more popular policies is in connection to other countries. Uh, you may remember the Australian style. Uh, point system um, for immigration, uh, which people talk about, and people also talk about uh, you know, being able to have an industrial uh, industry or an industrial strategy like that in Germany. Mm. So um, I think that there is an appetite for that if people feel that those examples are are quite positive from other countries. Certainly, your particular um, issue there on on, on high speed maglev. I mean, clearly, I think people are aware that those things are very uh, successful in other countries. Uh, and I think that you could also see that linking in uh, with sort of levelling up infrastructure, transport infrastructure as well. Um, well, coming towards the end of the podcast, it's been great to speak to you, James, and I have one final question. We've discussed coronavirus and uh, its impact to a certain extent uh, in the UK. Um, so when things are uh, fully back to normal and we don't have to wear masks and, and social distance, obviously, as, as we do now. Uh, what one thing that you haven't been able to do uh, because of the pandemic are you most looking forward to being able to do? Hey, well, great question. <laughs> um, I am desperate to go travelling again. Um, I uh, really like going abroad. I really like sort of doing quite difficult travelling abroad. So just before the pandemic, um, I went on a solo trip around Algeria, um, which is a fascinating country because the tourism uh, industry is practically non-existent there. So you're able to go, there's not any sort of haggling, there's not sort of any uh, pressure on you as a tourist. You can actually really enjoy it and get a sense of what the culture is without it being uh, sort of ruined by mass tourist numbers. So yeah, very keen to get on a plane and do some exploring and uh, particularly, as I say, sort of North Africa, Middle East. Well, I hope you will be able uh, to go back there and to, uh, to travel more widely again soon. James Johnson, thank you for coming on the podcast.